All right. We're looking at page uh, 23 in our notes. Page 23. And uh, just to remind you again that we're looking in the book of Romans at our salvation in Christ. And this is often called the most theological document that Paul writes. They're all theological, but it's more like a theological treatise or a doctrinal statement more than anything. And part of that's because we said Paul did not establish this church. So he is writing to them and communicating with them, apparently maybe for the first time, and he wants to lay out his understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to focus on two doctrines, two very essential doctrines, the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification. And that's justification in one through four and sanctification in five through eight. These doctrines can't be separated, but they have to be distinguished always. One is legal, judicial, positional. That's justification. It's not experiential. As a justified person, I don't have, there's no changes made in me. Justification is a legal declaration. It's a, a, a imputing of righteous, a forgiveness of my sins and imputing of, of righteousness to us. Uh, God begins to change us then once we are saved, we're born again, we're regenerated, we have a new nature, and he starts the work of making us righteous. So justification declares us righteous and imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. But in sanctification, he begins the process immediately upon our salvation of making us holy and conforming us to his son. So we'll see that in five through eight. So we're looking at the first section, the first four chapters, which maybe this long title, The Revelation of the Righteousness That Comes from God by Faith Alone. So we're talking about this righteousness that comes from God, this righteousness that God imputes to us. That's justification. Remember we said the word justify or just and righteous are really the same word in Greek, same the original language of the New Testament. So to justify means to declare righteous. And so he's going to explain this justification, this declaring righteous, this imputing of righteousness uh, in chapters one through four. Now, before he actually explains how it is that we obtain this righteousness, Paul is dwelling right now, and the whole time we've been here for weeks, we've been talking about the need of the righteousness. He wants to show us that we are sinners and that we are in need of God's righteousness, that we cannot save ourselves. So he wants to make sure we understand that we are lost and undone and without hope. And that's the first thing that people need to understand if they're going to come to Christ. They first have to understand they need Christ, and they need Christ because they are unrighteous and they're under condemnation, as Paul says. So he begins to explain that. He says, the Gentiles are condemned and the Jews are condemned. He starts with Gentiles. And he says, Gentiles, even who don't have the, the Bible, the Old Testament in his day, are still condemned. And we say, well, why could that be? 
How could God condemn people who don't have the scripture? Well, the point is, they do have revelation from God, Paul says. They have natural revelation, the revelation of God in nature. He'll say in chapter two, they also have, uh, a, they also have a conscience, a moral code. And Paul says they suppress it. Even though they see God in creation, they should glorify him. Uh, they suppress that truth. And what do they do? They, they worship idols. So they, they know God, Paul says, and yet they reject God, the, the God who's revealed in creation, and therefore are condemned. He moves on now to the section we're in to talk about the Jew is also condemned. <clears throat> Remember we talked about it in Rome, the church probably started in the Jewish synagogue. It has a large Jewish presence, although it's mostly Gentile. And so the question is, are Jews on the same plane as Gentiles? Now, Paul will say they are. As far as judgment is concerned, the Jews don't have any advantage. They're depraved, sinners, lost, they need the same salvation that Gentiles need. But that's going to be a little harder sell because Jews think of themselves as we're Abraham's children. We're children of the covenant. And so therefore we're automatically sort of right with God, you know, and so forth. And many people in religion have that view, even in Christianity, you know, people uh, are baptized when they're babies and so forth. And they're, their parents go to church and they, you know, they just think, well, okay, I'm, I'm okay too, you know. So the Jew is condemned. We looked at last week, the first part, Paul was explaining about God's impartial judgment. That is, there's no preference, preference with God. God just judges based upon people's works. He looks at them individually, he's impartial. And now we're ready to look at what he really wants to get to the fact that because God is impartial and he doesn't show favoritism, the Jews are ultimately condemned because they have failed. Uh, they haven't failed like the Gentiles, but they have failed. And he wants to explain that now here, beginning on page 23. So I say here, Paul's main point in 2.1.16 is that because the Jew will be assessed by God in the judgment on the same basis as the Gentile works doing the law. He cannot assume any more than the Gentile that he will escape God's judgment. But Paul is aware here in making this statement and in saying this, that this ignores a crucial matter. That is the Jews, as I've said, claim to have a special status with God. They claim they're in, a better, they're in a better situation than Gentiles by virtue of the fact that they're, in, they're part of the covenant people of God. And so Paul is going to take up this question of, does that really help them in their salvation, the fact that they are uh, God's covenant people, that they have the law, that they've been circumcised? And he's going to say, ultimately, it doesn't really make them saved. I say Paul insists that their privileges do not exempt them from God's judgment. So Paul is going to argue that neither knowledge of the law nor physical circumcision are of value unless the law is obeyed. And we talked about that last time, about the obedience to the law, that Paul has been arguing that if a person kept the law 
and that means perfectly. If a, Paul, if a person kept God's law, obeyed God all their life, God would have to say, yes, you're righteous. Come on into heaven. Now, there is a person who did that, <laughs> Jesus, but he's the only one who's ever kept the law perfectly. Most people think their view of salvation, especially those who've had some little Christian experiences, that, you know, it's God's going to take me to heaven because I was pretty good. I was good enough. Uh, you know, I tried to take care of my family, and I didn't cheat people or steal. And so, you know, I'm, I'm good enough. I'm as good as the next guy. And so, uh, you know, I'll make it. Uh, you know, I, th I think I'll make it there. And Paul is going to say, no, God requires perfect righteousness. <laughs> and, of course, that's going to be a problem for the Jew, too, as we'll see. So Paul begins by talking about how the Jews, though they have the law, they haven't kept the law. This is 2.17 through 24. But he begins first by talking about Jewish privilege here. And in verses 17 through 20, uh, Paul lists nine privileges that Jews boasted about. He's just listing things that were commonly known. Now, these privileges that he talks about here is paralleled in Jewish literature of the time. Paul's not making this up. He's just taking these things that Jews boast about from Jewish literature. Uh, and Paul expects us to interpret all these privileges positively. These are good things. Uh, these, these are things that are wonderful. Uh, they, have, they are legitimate privileges. Let's look at them, verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God. So I'm just listing, you know, they are God's chosen, they call themselves a Jew. They're God's chosen people. That's a privilege. They rely on the law. Uh, they have a special relationship with God. They boast in God. Verse 18. If you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law. So these are great advantages over, Je over Gentiles. They have knowledge of God's will in the law, in the Old Testament. They approve of the most important things because they have revelation in the law. So I say now in verses 19 through 20, Paul takes up the ministry that Jews should rightfully have toward Gentiles because they have this law. Verse 19, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark. And so the, here's the two things. You know, they're a guide for the light, blind, light for those. I say, because the Jews know the law and have these, this special relationship to God, they have a responsibility to teach others something asserted in the Old Testament. So, yeah, here's what the Old Testament says, Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. I, the Lord, have called you, that is you, the Jewish people, in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. 49.6 Isaiah, it is, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel that I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. Now, ultimately, Jews didn't take that responsibility very seriously at all. They tended to 
look upon Gentiles as unclean dogs, and they weren't particularly evangelistic in any sense about that. Verse 20, here's more Jewish, here's privileges. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So here's these continuation of privileges, instructors of foolish, teachers of children. I say here, Paul uh, concludes by telling why the Jews have become the gods and teachers to the world. They have in the law the embodiment of truth and knowledge. So the Jewish people, the Jew, has knowledge of God and truth embodied in a far more clear and detailed way uh, than course Gentile does. And he, he claims this, and he acknowledges this, and he boasts in this. But the point is, thus the Jew is therefore more responsible than the Gentile. If the Gentile was, is without excuse, then certainly the Jew becomes without excuse because he has greater revelation. And that brings Paul to explain the failure here, what happened. Verse 21, you then who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Well, yeah, Jews, <laughs> Jews did steal. You, say, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Rhetorical questions, but the answer is yeah, yeah, they did do that. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Yeah, they did that. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? These verses expose the failure of the Jew to live up to the privileges just listed in 17 through 20. Their problem was hypocrisy. Remember Matthew 23. So you must be careful, Jesus says, to do everything they, that is the teachers, the law, and the Pharisees tell you. Yeah, what they tell you from the Bible is true. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. I say here, Paul does not mean that all Jews commit these sins, but they are representative of the contradiction between the claim and the conduct that does pervade Judaism. Verse 24, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He quotes Isaiah 42.5 to confirm this conclusion drawn in verse 23 and to draw out the implications of this disobedience of the Jews for God's honor in the world. Now, he's talked about the law. Fact is, Jews don't keep the law. They break the law, uh, just like Gentiles do. He talks now about the conditional value of circumcision because they boasted in circumcision as part of the Abrahamic covenant. And so it has value, but it's condition. Notice he says, Paul has shown in verses 12 through 24 that Jews' possession of the law will not protect them from judgment because it's the doing of the law, not the having or knowing or teaching of the law that matters. Now in verses 25 through 29, he argues that neither is circumcision of any benefit unless the law is obeyed. So circumcision, like the law, was a sign of the Jewish people's privileged position uh, as a member of God's chosen people, covenant people. They participated in the, in the covenant established with Abraham, remember back in Genesis 17. And so because they were part of the covenant people, 
they they were circumcised as uh, as God told Abraham to do to his descendants as as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Jews often looked upon this as virtually guaranteeing circumcision. I quote here from the rabbis who say, no person who is circumcised will go down to Gehenna, that is hell. That's from, a, that's from the, the Mishnah, the Talmud. So, you know, they think, well, because I've been circumcised, I am, I'm okay. And, you know, we have the same problem in Christianity with the ordinances. People think, well, I'm baptized. Hey, I was baptized. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm, I've asked people that, you know, are you a Christian? Well, I was baptized, you know, so, so I'm okay. Or, or I take the Lord's Supper, you know. Well, we should be baptized. We should take the Lord's Supper, <laughs> but they are just symbols or signs and, and they don't guarantee in themselves that one is, is saved. Verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So I say this section, verses 25 through 29, is a response to an implied objection from Jews who might argue that they should not be in danger of God's wrath like Gentiles since Jews are God's chosen people, marked by circumcision as part of the Abrahamic covenant. And Paul's response here is that, well, this circumcision does have value when it's accompanied by obedience to the law. But on the other hand, if you're a transgressor of the law, if you break the law here, as he says, then it's just like you might as well not even be circumcised. It, it doesn't really have any, it's like uncircumcision. Now, when he says to obey the law here, he's talking about, as we've talked about, and we'll come back to this, perfect obedience. Paul God requires perfect obedience of the law, as we saw in verses 7 and following. Verse 26, so then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, that is like Gentiles, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? If it's not circumcision but obedience to the law that determines whether one belongs to God's chosen people, that is one is really saved, it follows as a consequence that a Gentile, even though uncircumcised, can, if he obeys the law, be counted among God's people. And again, he's talking about perfectly keeping the law. Remember, it's impossible, you got to keep this in mind, we'll keep coming back to this, that Paul is actually saying it's possible to keep the law perfectly enough to get to heaven. It's, 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 it's impossible in light of Paul's constant statements about our inability to keep the law sufficiently, like Acts 13, 39. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Why not? Because you can't keep the law sufficiently well, you can't keep it perfectly to be saved. So, uh, you're set free here with this justification. Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by the works of law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we might be justified, maybe justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of law because by the works of law, no one will be justified. Why not? Well, it's because we are depraved sinful creatures who cannot keep the law sufficiently. Paul is going to say in just a few minutes, 
the problem is we're under what he calls the power of sin. And that keeps us from sufficiently obeying the law. Verse 26 uh, is, is really serving here to, to again relativize the Jewish position and the Gentile position. They're sort of in the same position, denying any you know, salvific value that, sal that circumcision doesn't really save you. you know? Verse 27, the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, even though you have the written code in circumcision are a lawbreaker. You have it. The Jews uh, commonly believed that the righteous would sit in judgment over the unrighteous. But of course, they also believed that they were the righteous and the Gentiles were the unrighteous. Now, Paul just kind of reverses this customary scheme here, uh, continuing to argue like he did from verse uh, 26. And he says that the Gentiles who fulfill the law, if they could fulfill the law perfectly, they would sit in judgment over Jews who transgress the law. So if there was a Jew, who, a Gentile who could perfectly keep the law, then just because you possess the law and don't keep it, you, don't, just, you wouldn't have any advantage. Verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Verses 20 and 29 explain why circumcision does not guarantee salvation and why lack of circumcision does not prevent one from being saved. Though God's verdict is based on works, these works reveals people's secrets, he says, the inner reality of a person's commitment to God. And it's this uh, internal, you know, hidden, condition of the heart that ultimately matters, not some outward ceremony, not some outward rite, not some outward fleshly thing. What we really need to get into God's family, Paul says here, is what he calls circumcision of the heart done by the Spirit, not keeping the Jewish law or Jewish covenant status. Now, circumcision of the heart is a phrase taken from the Old Testament in various places, Deuteronomy 16, Jeremiah 4.4. And it speaks of a change of heart, a new heart. It's equivalent to what we call in the New Testament regeneration or being born again. So circumcision of the heart is a change of heart, a new heart, regeneration, being born again. And Paul says, that's what you need, not some sort of outward right. And, you know, as we just, I just said, unfortunately, many people are basing their hope of heaven on an outward right. Well, I was a member of so-and-so church, or I was baptized and so-and-so, and therefore, you know, uh, I'm going to heaven. And it's, you know, this is very, very sad. This is very sad. I mean, I've been to an, a lot of funerals, but <clears throat> I think every funeral I've been to, everybody goes to heaven. You know what I mean? Everybody gets into heaven. Well, he was a member of our church, or he, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, not really about faith in Christ necessarily so much or anything about the person, you know. 
and it's very discouraging, you know, to 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 go to that kind of thing. And and you know, in your heart, you feel like you know, <laughs> this person is probably not going to be there with us. You know, it's a wonderful thing to to uh, you know to think about salvation by faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. It's not based on our works. So you and I, you know, we know, we have a certainty that we're going to see, um, you know, our brother Vince Muscat, you know, who passed away last year. We, we, we don't doubt that. We, we, we know we're going to see Ken Akers, you know. I know these men pretty well since I came to CBC. And I don't have any doubts that, you know, I'll probably be going to heaven before some of you will. <laughs> I turned 75 yesterday, unfortunately. <laughs> so. Um, you know, but I have no doubts that uh, when I get there, I'll see these men, you know, because they weren't, they weren't basing their salvation on <clears throat> their baptism, or their church membership or something like that, but on the imputed righteousness of Christ. So <clears throat> it's a wonderful thing. So um, as I say here, um, what Paul is really doing here in this verse 29 is he's sort of reaching ahead to what's coming because he's, he keeps talking about <clears throat> you can't keep the law. And here's how you're really saved. It's really this, it's really this circumcision of the heart. He's sort of reaching together what he's going to get to in chapter three and verse 21. We're going to get there eventually where he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So he's going to tell us that in the Old Testament even, it does tell us about how to be right with God. He's going to use examples like David and Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was counted. It was imputed to him for righteousness, and that's what saved Abraham and, and David and so forth. Well, let's look at some Jewish objections because Paul's argument here is not going down well with his Jewish friends, uh, some of his Jewish friends, I'm sure. So I say in this section, Paul meets and answers objections to a Jew, that a Jew might make to the argument advanced in chapter 2, especially verses 17 through 29. So in those verses, we've seen that Paul, you know, has, has said that mere possession of the law doesn't exempt one from punishment and fleshly circumcision is worthless unless you have an inward change. Just like we say, baptism, our baptism is worthless unless there's been a real inward change. We have regeneration. So it appears Paul has sort of reduced the Jew and Gentile uh, to a position of equality. But that's not exactly right. I say here, Paul surprises us with his response by arguing that contrary to what one might conclude based on the previous argument, Jews do have an advantage over Gentiles. However, at the same time, Paul insists that if God's character as righteous judge of the world may maintain, the Jew cannot be exempted from punishment. So Jews have an advantage, but not in judgment. So let's take a look at that. Here's the first objection that Paul imagined someone might bring to his argument that he's been making. 
What advantage then is there being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? Paul? The question asks, what in light of Paul's teaching is the advantage of the Jew or prophet of circumcision? The assumption is that one may infer from Paul's teaching that Jews had no advantage over the Gentile and that there is no profit in circumcision. Now that's wrong. Uh, Paul's argument is not intended to prove the equality of Jew and Gentile in respect of privilege, not in respect of privilege, but in respect of the reality of guilt, in respect of the need for divine justification. The Jews have an advantage, as we'll see, but it's not in respect to judgment. Verse 2, much in every way, Paul says. Yeah, they have an advantage. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So here they do have an advantage, Paul says, much in every way. And their chief advantage, and it's a huge advantage, is being entrusted with the scriptures, with the very words of God. Psalm 147. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. So here we're a reference to the entire Old Testament revelation. That's a tremendous advantage to have that revelation. Another objection someone might raise. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness to his promises. The question asks whether God has failed because some were unfaithful, and that unfaithful means they had a lack of faith. They didn't follow God, because Paul has just said that not all Jews keep the law, not all Jews, not all Jews are saved. Although Israel's possession of God's revelation would normally be counted a great advantage, it might be argued that the failure to live up to it by most Israelites means that God's promises are largely going unfulfilled. And so God's faithfulness is called into question. Uh, that is, is he really carrying out the terms of his covenant to bless his people and all that? If, if you say, Paul, what you've said about the Jewish position here. Paul says, not at all. Let God be true in every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Paul's answer given in verse four is three parts. First, he repels in the heart of the suggestion of God's unfaithfulness, that God is not keeping his promises, God's promises are gonna fail, uh, he won't be faithful to them, not at all, Paul says. Uh, God forbid, may it never be. Second, he affirms that God's truth is absolute and unbreakable. Let God be true and every man, uh, every human being a liar. Now this is, uh, this I think, you know, it could be translated and it might better explain if you say, God must be true, which means God is true. This is, uh, in Greek, we have, we have imperatives and we have them in the third person. In English, we only have imperatives in the second person. You do this or pick up your clothes or uh, go to the store that we're talking to a person. So this sounds like, it sounds like uh, sort of permission or something. Let make, you know, let allow God to be true. It, it's, it's not quite that. It's saying God must be true is what it is indicating. 
Paul said, no, no, God's not, God, God is true. God must be true. He is true. Uh, God is true and every human being a liar. Um, so God's truth, Paul says, cannot be doubted. Even if man's falsehood is universal, no matter, you know, we don't judge truth by counting, uh, you know, people's opinions and things like that. God is faithful. Even if everyone on earth is a liar, God is the determiner of truth. I say third, Paul enforces his argument by a quotation from the Old Testament that speaks of God's righteousness over against mankind's faithfulness. And the passage cited here, a uh, sinfulness, I'm sorry, mankind's sinfulness. The passage cited is part of David's confession in Psalm 51.4, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. In the process of condemning sinners, God is shown to be righteous. So the Old Testament is very clear on this, very insistent that God is equally faithful when he judges people's disobedience and sin, as well as when he fulfills his promises. He's being faithful to his word. Nehemiah 9. Now therefore our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seemed trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until now, today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we have acted well, uh, wickedly. So it might appear from the, from the fact of the uh, deportation of the Jews and the captivity of the Jews and now coming back to the land and all the problems, God just hasn't been faithful. No, it, Nehemiah says, no, it's not that. It's that we have been acting wickedly, and that's the cause of our situation. He gets to a third objection now, three, five through eight. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? So the question is, if the Jews' unrighteousness, their sinfulness, makes more manifest God's righteousness, makes God look more holy, is God then fair in inflicting punishment for their sin? In other words, could I say to God, God, you know, I'm a big sinner, but it makes you look good. So, you know, don't judge me. <laughs> you know, that's what someone is saying here. Um, if under these circumstances he condemns them for being unrighteous, does that not make him unright? Make for being unright doesn't make him unrighteous. In other words, if the Jews, Paul is saying here, sin sets off more clearly God's righteousness, isn't God somehow obligated to exempt them? from punishment. Paul says, I am using a human argument. You notice the parentheses here. So first, Paul sort of apologizes for even mentioning an objection he finds repulsive. You know, here's an objection someone might make. Hey, listen, God, I'm sinning, but man, it makes you look good. And Paul says, this is some sort of human argument. I, I, you know, I'm kind of apologizing here. 
for even saying something this repulsive. This is really repulsive. Uh, Paul wants to distance himself from any suggestion that God may be unjust. And what's his answer? Certainly not. May it never be. God forbid. Paul repels from the thought with horror. Certainly not. He says, if that were so, verse 6b, how could God judge the world? So third, Paul shows that the re objector's reasoning is absurd, would be absurd. For on this principle, God couldn't punish anybody. God couldn't judge anyone if he never judged sins. If He couldn't judge anyone if he never judged sins that magnify his righteousness or manifest his righteousness because all sins manifest his righteousness. When we sin, we show ourselves to be unrighteous and how much more righteous God is. Verse 7, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness, and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Verse seven really just restates and elaborates this objection from verse five. How is it fair for God to judge me if my sin brings him glory? Verse eight, why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Here's Paul's answer. There condemnation is just. Anybody who thinks like that deserves to be condemned. So the objector states a further objection based on Paul's assertion that every sin leads to God's glory. Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do good, let us do evil that good may result. Probably Paul was accused of teaching the very doctrine that the objector claims is the logical conclusion of his viewpoint. That is, the Jewish objector viewed Paul's teaching that obedience to law was not the basis for ultimate salvation as undercutting morality. Now, Paul engages really in no logical defense here, you see. He just simply pronounces a condemnation. Anybody who thinks like that, that's just blasphemous. Their condemnation is just. But this objection is raised all the time about justification by faith that we believe. Um, it's raised, it was raised by the Roman Catholic Church to the Protestant Reformation. They totally objected to justification by faith alone because they said, well, if that's the case, if I'm saved by faith alone, then I can just go out and live like I want to. I can just do whatever I want to, you know, and that's the, you hear that sometimes. Like if I believed in eternal security, in fact, that's what the Roman Catholic Church did. The Roman Catholic Church at the Reformation, what they were most upset about was the doctrine of assurance of salvation. The fact that I could say, and I would say, because I've trusted Christ, I believe I'm going to heaven. I, I know I'm going to heaven. Because I say that, that was something the Roman Catholic Church totally objected to because if that's true, then their whole system is, falls apart. You don't need to go to the mass. You don't need to have all these sacraments and all this kind of stuff, all these works. But the Roman Catholic Church teaches and taught justification is by faith plus works. So often, because we don't believe in salvation by works, we're accused of antinomianism. We don't have any law. We don't believe in obeying God. But that's not true. 
justification invariably leads us to sanctification because we've been changed, because we have a new nature. We're not under the power of sin. Paul says, we'll see, we're slaves to righteousness. Now Paul says, I'm going to summarize this up. Gentiles are condemned. Jews are condemned. All mankind is condemned. With these verses, the apostle brings to a close his assessment of human need. The chief emphasis appears still to be on the Jew, but the argument broadens in scope so that it becomes a sort of a summary of all that has been written in the preceding section. So the point here is that the whole world lies under condemnation, under God's condemnation. And people are unable to escape this combination by anything they do, by their works. They can't escape it. He begins with a charge of universal condemnation. What should we conclude then about all this that I've been saying? Do we have an advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. So Paul begins in effect by asking, what conclusion are we to draw from the foregoing argument? This is expanded by the question, do we have an advantage? The we refers to Paul and his fellow Jews. Are we Jews at any advantage? And Paul's answer is no, negative, not at all. As he's emphasized repeatedly in chapter two, Jews have no advantage when it comes to God's impartial judgment. They have no advantage in the judgment. Paul's negative response is explained, for we have, for we have already made the charge. By the last sentence of the verse, Paul reminds his readers of the charge or accusation that he has already made. Both Jews and Greeks are alike under the power of sin. Under the power of sin means to be a helpless slave of sin, to be under the dominion of sin. Now, this is a big point for Paul, and he's going to stress this a lot when he gets to chapter 6. He's going to say there, uh, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that's now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So Paul sees only uh, two positions, <laughs> two states. One is either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Now, we like to talk about intermediate categories because we like to say, well, some Christians are good and some are a little better, some are a little better. And that's true. There are degrees of growth and sanctification. But there's a fundamental distinction between those who are lost, who have never trusted Christ, and those who are born again or regenerated. Those who are lost, like you and I once were, we were at that time slaves to sin. Our disposition was to sin. We, couldn't, we didn't have another disposition. So everything we did was tainted by sin. But now, Paul says, we are slaves to righteousness. That is, the basic inclination of our lives, we have a new nature, is toward God. Now, we fail, we sin, but still, that basic direction. So we're, we're going one way, and we turn around 180 degrees and go the other way. Verse 
chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law, but under grace. So sin is not our master. So the non-Christian is a slave to sin, Paul says. Uh, all, all, everybody who has not experienced this righteousness from God, this imputed righteousness, Paul says, are helpless captives to sin. And nothing that Paul said so far has suggested there's any exception to this. There's no exceptions. Um, and that shows the desperate need, you know, for, that people need the gospel. One is either one or the other. There's no in-between status. You're either slave to sin and ultimately condemned, or you're a slave to righteousness, and you'll be in heaven. Then B here, proven by universal corruption. Sin is a power, rules over all people. All are under the power of sin, Paul says, verse 9. But it manifests itself in specific acts, specific sins, verses 10 through 17. Paul supports his assertion of universality of sin by connected a series of Old Testament quotations. Verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. So verses 10 through 12 speak of the degradation of character. And the quotation here comes from Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Verse 10 seems to be a summary of all that follows in verses 11 through 18. And so what Paul means here is that not a single person, not a single person apart from God's justifying grace can stand as right before God. No one is righteous, not one person in God's sight apart from justification, the impartation of Christ's righteousness. Verse 11, there is no one who understands there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have come together. They have, come to, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So these verses develop verse 10. There's none righteous, not even one. Paul's commentary on there is no one who understands is found in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The person without the spirit, the unsaved person, does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the spirit. And Paul says, as a corollary, there is no one who seeks God. No person apart from the grace of God will seek the true and living God. Now you say, wait a minute. There's people who seek, yeah, they seek gods of their own making. <laughs> you know, here's the kind of God I worship, or here's what, I, you know, they have a view of God. They have a God they want, a God of their own making, as Paul said in Romans 1. As totally depraved being, humans are not capable, apart from God's grace, of doing any good that would gain them any favor with God. Verse 13, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Beginning in verse 13, the focus on universality is abandoned in favor of a description of representative sins. 
Verse 13 comes from Psalm 5, 9 and Psalm 140, verse 3, verse 14 from Psalm 10, 7. So these verses speak of the degradation of speech, don't they? The degradation of the character of the tongue. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. These verses speak of the degradation of conduct, focusing on sins of violence against others. Verses 15 through 17 come from Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. Verse 18 from Psalm 36, 1. Notice in verses 13 through 7, the mention of various organs of the body, throat, tongue, lips, mouth, feet, and eyes. Together they show that from what a perspective mankind may be viewed, the verdict of scripture is one of universal and total depravity. So when we talk about total depravity, we mean total corruption. We mean that every aspect of our being is tainted by sin. Doesn't mean we're as sinful as we could be, uh, some people are more corrupt and more sinful than others, but we're all sinful, we're, and every part of our being is sinful. So total depravity means all of us are sinful, every part of our being. There's no part of our being that escapes. Our minds are tainted by sin, our hearts, our wills are all tainted by sin. And if that's true, then we're unable to do anything the Bible calls works, we'll see this works, to save ourselves. Now people can do relatively good things. They can help others, give money. They do things that, that are relatively good. But they're not commendable to God because they're not done for the glory of God ultimately. There's always a selfish motive behind a lot of this stuff. They're not done because they want to glorify God Jesus Christ through God. And so, you know, we have these texts. Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous acts are as filthy rags. You pray, Jesus says, to be seen by others. There's this hypocrisy. Proverbs says, uh, a haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. Something as simple as plowing a field does not gain you merit with God because it's not done from a renewed heart with the right motivation to glorify the true and living God. Second Timothy 3, 5, having a form of godliness, yes, we see that all the time, but denying its real power from the true and living God. So we say that we are totally depraved. Every part of our being is affected by sin and it affects all of us. We're under the power of sin, Paul says. And this total depravity results in total inability. We have no ability or even a desire to please God, the true God, the true and living God. There is no one who seeks God. That is, seeks the true and living God with right and noble purposes. Romans 8, Paul will say, the mind governed by the flesh, that is, by the sinful nature, that's the unsaved person. Their mind is governed by the, the flesh. Is hostile to God. And it does, does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. 
those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. It goes on to say, but if you're, you know, if you have the spirit, you can please God. If you don't have the spirit, you're not, you're not, you're not, none of his. He says, you are not in the flesh, Paul says in verse nine, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If the spirit of Christ, you know, dwells in you. And if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you're not a Christian. You're not one of God's children. First Corinthians 2.14, the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God but considers them foolishness. They cannot understand them because they are spiritually, they are discerned only through the spirit. So we are totally depraved. That's our condition. That means total inability. We cannot save ourselves. First uh, Corinthians 2.14. So, you know, we're in pretty bad shape. And for most of Christian history, Christians have recognized this. Uh, you know, think about Amazing Grace. Um, think about the, the verse to Amazing Grace. Um, amazing Grace, you know, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. Saved a wretch like me. That's our condition. Now, a lot of people don't like that. <laughs> even so called Christians don't like that. Christian churches don't like liberal Christian churches. Take for example, one of them, the United Church of Canada. I don't know if you've heard of the United Church of Canada. It's the liberal, very liberal denomination in Canada. They don't really hold to the truth of scripture. They don't follow the real doctrines of scripture, but they, they call themselves Christians, but they couldn't stop. They can't stomach this, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So in their hymnals, they made, they made a change, various changes to get around that. One of them says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved and strengthened me. Saved and strengthened me. Others churches have it, saved a soul like me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saved a soul like me. Others say saved and set me free. But that thing saved a wretch like me, well, John, he just, he was just, <laughs> he was too negative. <laughs> we're better. We're good. You know, we're pretty good. We're pretty good. So the final quotation in verse 18, there is no fear of God's before their eyes, exposes the root error that gives rise to the manifold sins of humanity, their failure to fear and reverence God. As I said, these verses argue both for total depravity and total inability. And that's why we need the grace of God.